yourself of one more thing that you should have got, and that is the sermon notes. It should look like this. They're back there on that table if you didn't get one. You're going to need it this morning. It's a rich text. Galatians 3, verse 15 is where we're going to begin. We jumped ahead a little bit for Christmas and looked at Galatians 4, and so now we're, we're, we're going back just where we left off in Galatians 3, and we're looking at verse 15. So stand with me if you have that, and remember in your mind that we're reading a letter, a letter that was written to the churches in Galatia, and so we, we don't have time in one service to read and exposit the whole letter, and so we break it up into sections and go through it a verse at a time, and we find ourselves at this place in the letter of Paul that he wrote to the churches of Galatia. So in Galatians 3, verse 15, we read, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteous would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you that were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. God, your word is good. Or we could say amen and go home. And your people have been blessed by the reading of your word. The Lord, grant us now the privilege, grant us the wisdom, grant us the focus of a mind to be able to together read and understand your word so that we might apply it to all of life in Jesus' name. You may be seated. If you haven't asked this question, you probably will. And if you think you've got beyond the question, you might just find you in a season where you're asking it again. But we've all asked it at one point in time. Who am I? Where am I going? Why am I here anyway? Am I just floating along without meaning and purpose? Does there anything really matter? Well, Paul's passion in 
and his argument that he's right in the middle of making is that our standing before the God of the universe has everything to do with who we are. It has everything to do with why we're here and where we're going. The problem is the false teachers thought it did too. You see, all religions try to answer those questions. So he's making an argument. And he says the answer to this argument If you're right before God, based off what you do, has an impact on how you live. But if it is true, as Paul was arguing, that our standing before God comes by faith in Jesus Christ and that alone, it changes everything. And so he's making that argument by justification by faith. You remember, he's used two lines of argument. He used experience to start with. And he says, you've experienced the Holy Spirit in your life. So let me ask you a question. Did it come by the law? Did it come by faith? Now he's went the way of Scripture. And so he's in the middle of that. Remember the week before last, he made the argument. Those who believe by faith are God's children, and they're blessed. How are they blessed? They're blessed with eternal life. But those who tried to gain their standing before God by works are cursed by the very standard they're supposed to keep still making that argument. And so he unfolds before us in this very rich text, both history and theology. And he has history. He has these three men, Abraham, Moses, and Christ. Three men of history. Sean got a a race car track. You remember you got that race car track for Christmas. And you had to put it together. And the track goes down the track, and it does a... 360 and it goes around and comes out. You see, there's directional arrows on that. So Sean, me and Sean had to read the directions. We had to make sure we put it on right. Because if you get the tracks reversed, what's going to happen? The car is going to derail. That's what's going to happen. It's not going to make it. This is what's happening. This is, what, this is his argument. The Judaizers have reversed the tracks. They put it on up backwards. They thought they could mess with it. And what this leads to is a derailed life. So it's important this morning. The history is important. And so is the theology. Because these two men, Abraham and Moses, reflect two covenants. To Abraham he gave promises, Genesis 12. And to Moses God gave the law. Well, what does it matter for New Testament Christians? Is the order important? Does the one they came after override or nullify the Abrahamic? covenant what does this have to do with me and my standing before god does it have anything you need to hear me today this text could really help it could flip everything upside down in your life but paul's making says that that the abrahamic covenant has everything to do with your standing before god here's what i want us to see this morning god's law doesn't change god's promise It reveals our need for grace. And that gracious promise can only be received by faith. And when it is, it forms the very identity and the purpose of why we exist, why we live, where we're going, and how do we get there. No more important argument. So first he says God's law doesn't change God's promise. 
Look at verse 15. Galatians 3, verse 15. He first wants us to understand the very nature of the covenant of promise. First in verse 15, we see that it's unchangeable. It says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Our problem today is to get in the cultural context of this with covenants. When every marriage seems like lately is made with an escape clause. So let's try something different. It's because we struggle with it in our culture. Let's think about the last will and testament. Mike just got married. He probably hadn't thought about his will. I don't know if you have. Better think about it. He's going to die one day, brother. But he makes his will. And he dies. Well, let's say that they have six kids. Operating in faith. They have six kids. Well, when he's dead, the kid says, you know, I don't really like this whole will thing he did. Let's just change it. I'm going to change this. I'm going to add to that. This is what he's saying. Listen, that's what they're saying. Even humans understand that these covenants are unbreakable. They can't be changed. They can't be added to. This is a lesser to greater argument. If that's true, that a will cannot be changed once it's ratified, how much more true is it the God who makes promises that never changes? So the first thing about this nature of this covenant is that's unchangeable. The second thing, Ought to knock your socks off. It is spiritually fulfilled. Look at this word. Offspring. Verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to his offsprings, referring to many, but to one and to your offspring, which is what? What does he say? Who is what? Christ. The word offspring here is the Greek word where we get sperma. I'll just let you spell that out and understand where we get the English word. That means seed. He's saying the nature of this covenant is its spiritual fulfillment in Christ. Doesn't he understand the promises of the land and Canaan and all that? I think Paul probably understood it better than we did. But so therefore he understands its greater fulfillment is ultimately spiritual and therefore greater. The land and the seed are spiritually referring to Christ and our inheritance in Him. The seed is Christ in verse 16. And all those who are in Christ are therefore Abraham's offspring. His seed therefore heirs to its fulfillment. Paul's magnifying the nature of this covenant, that it is free, it is unconditional. There was no law, there was no work. There was only God saying, I will, and Abraham saying, I believe. The nature of that promise and its fulfillment in the person of Christ. So listen, this is important. We are saying very clear, as clear as I can, that Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And in our studies in the future, we must keep our eyes on Jesus Christ because He is the fulfillment of it all. And you see, Judaizers thought was the Christian inheritance is given to those who keep the law. He's saying, no, you got your track on backwards. And that leads where it leads. You need to understand verse 17. The law came 430 years afterwards 
And it does not, and it cannot annul what God's already ratified. You know what it says? It said your tracks are reversed, and you can't do that because God made it, and he doesn't change. They are unchanging. They are spiritually fulfilled in Christ. And in verse 18, it is given by God himself. Look at verse 18. It is no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. It's free. It's a gift. It's grace. And it's God-given. So here's what we end up with. We have this piece of track we don't know what to do with. Seems like we've got Abraham going on, and he connects with Jesus. He fulfills that. So this Moses piece of track, this law piece of track, you know, can we just, are we just supposed to throw it away, Paul? See, he, he knows this question's coming. Coming by the Gentiles, we can just throw that away, can't we? And the Jews, they're, they're about to bow up. So he makes his second point. God's law illuminates our desperate need for his grace. He, he, in other words, he knows the question, so he goes ahead and presents the question. Why the law? This is not going to go away for Paul. Acts 21, 28, if you want to go there, Paul's getting arrested again. It's got to be normal in Paul's life. Suffering comes with the cross, you know. And here's what they said. This dude is teaching everywhere against the people and the law in this place. He goes on to say, they even bringing those people into our worship. So Paul gets to the question, why the law? Verse 19, he answers it. It was added because of transgressions. He says, it was added because of your sin. It's your sins why it was added. It's necessary. Oh, it's necessary. This is the divine passive. was added. It was ordained by God. You cannot take it out. It must go in there. So he's saying, why the law? Absolutely. The law is necessary. Why? Because of transgressions. You see, here's what he knows. Here's what we know. We naturally minimize our sin. Don't we? Nobody's perfect. I made a misjudgment. What public figures say. <laughs> I just, I had this moment of indiscretion. I like that. It's like, how do you turn what you did into an indiscretion? See, the law works because it exposes it. And it turns misjudgments and indiscretions into a legal problem before a holy God. That's what the law does. The law simply shines a light on the holy character and the will of God to show us that we do not and we cannot keep it. And it turns it into a legal issue. You see why the law? The law defines the transgression and it expands it. It shines a greater light on it. Look at Romans 5.20 with me. It helps us see this. Romans 5.20. Paul's got a consistent message. Romans 5.20, it says, Now the law came into, it came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Do you see? Beginning to see why the law is there. It increases. It shows us our sin. 
But at this point, he's not done with, with explaining why the law. But here's what he's doing at the same time. Don't you start getting the order out of whack again. Don't you start reversing it. And so he, he brings this issue up in 19 and 20 of an intermediary. Even talks about angels. You wouldn't believe the amount that's written on these two verses. That's <laughs> a lot. So let's just compress it down for the sake of time this morning. The intermediary is Moses. The it, two places in verses 19 and 20, is the law. So let's read it again, 19 and 20. The law was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise, promise of Abraham, has been made. And it was put in place through angels by Moses. Now, Moses implies more than one, but God is one. So what is he saying? Just very simply this morning. The law come, came to man third hand. God gave it to the angels, angels gave it to Moses, and Moses gives it to the people. You can look right down, we're not going to look at it, Acts 7.38. So the law is third hand, but the promise, straight from God. The law comes from God to Abraham. Why is that important? Because 1 Timothy 2.5 says there's only one mediator between God and man, and who is it? Jesus Christ. So he's still arguing, do you see it? Even in understanding why the law is here, to understand, don't you miss it. The Abrahamic covenant is supreme. It is first. It is greater. So, is it the enemy then? He knows that question's coming too in verse 21, so he goes ahead and asks it. Is the law, is the law then contrary to the promises? In other words, are they fighting each other? Or putting this track in, but it's just basically a speed bump getting to the gospel. If we could just take it out, we could get there quicker. They're fighting again. Is that it? No. Here's what he's saying. The law serves the promise. It serves it. Romans 11.32. Very clear. Romans 11.32 shows it says, it says this. Verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Do you see the purpose of the law? It's not its enemy, it's serving it. It's consigned everyone to the same desperate need. Everyone. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter who your daddy is. He consigns you to the same problem and therefore points it to all our desperate need for one thing. Mercy. We need it. It's the purpose of the law. You see, the law reveals a couple things. The law reveals what it's not. Look at verse 21. The law reveals it's not the source of life. For if the law had been given, for, it, for if a law, any law, could, that was given that could give life, then righteousness would come by the law. But what does the law reveal? It doesn't reveal that it's the way. And that's the problem with Judaism. Judaism says the law is the pathway to life. It still believes that. Faith has little or nothing to do with it. Christianity is the polar opposite. We say the law serves the promise by revealing our necessity for the cross, our necessity for the grace that comes through the seed, which is Christ. What does the law do? The law does two things. It points backwards to the Abrahamic promise. 
And then it points forward to Jesus Christ on the cross and our need for grace. So you see, we don't begin talking to our children about the grace and the cross in the New Testament. This begins in Genesis because that's when the problem started. Romans 6.15 shows us the problem. The problem is that we're slaves. And listen, we don't know it. And most people won't even believe it. Do you not know, Romans 6, look at verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to life? So do you see the purpose of the law here? What's the law doing? The law simply reveals that that person is a slave in sin. How? Because it, it not only defines what sin is, but it expands it. And, it's, and it shows that you've broke the very laws that you know you should keep. It expands it. Therefore, in showing you, you are in fact a slave. Therefore, the second thing, look at verse 22, you're imprisoned. Imprisoned under. But the scripture imprisoned everything under what? Sin. Why? So that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. He said not only the law, but all of the Old Testament, all of Scripture to them in that day, did one thing. It shows us that all have sinned. Therefore, all are in desperate need of God's grace. In other words, anybody ever went through Henry Blackaby's experience in God? Ever went through that? The one thing that he says that always comes in the life of a Christian is the crisis of belief moment in your life. What he's saying is this crisis of belief moment is created for those before Christ through the law that reveals your sin that gives you no ability through the law to fix it. It simply shows the more you try, the worse it gets. It points our way towards something, towards the fulfillment, the seed. So God's promise is ultimate. God's law reveals our desperate need for His grace. And so then God's gracious promise shapes the lives of God's people. So we see in verse 23 to 29 two things that we must do. We must remember who we were. We talked about that a little bit at the beginning. We've been singing it. We've also been singing who we are. So we remember through God's grace by this promise so this, listen this morning, you've got to ask yourself the question, am I remembering these things through the lens of the law or through the lens of the promise? That's why it's important today to get the, rel- to get the tracks on right. Who were we? Look at verse 23, where we're imprisoned. He's just teasing out what he's already said. Now before faith came, you see that we're remembering back before Christ in our life. We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. This word, we were held captive. It's not my illustration. It's not original to me, but it's a good one. They said the law is a cage. And so what you have is a lion and a lamb. The law is a cage. And you stick that lion in that cage and you put the lamb outside the cage. Can the lion kill the lamb? No. Here's the question. Does he want to? Now you see the problem. 
The law can't fix that. It can't take the want to out of the problem. And the want to is the problem. The law is the cage. And that's who we were. That's why we need the law. That's why your kids need it. It's the cage. It, it protects them from the wickedness that's within them. Not simply the wickedness that's in this world. That's why the law. We were imprisoned in a cage. That's what the, we needed the law. We also needed a babysitter. Look at verse 24. I'm not making this up. This is the, these are the pictures. They paint a picture in your mind. That's what Paul's such a good teacher. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now you've got to understand this babysitter wasn't a grandparent. Grandparents can be just a little bit too easy. It's not who this guy was. This guy was a house slave. He was the child's attendant. He was its guide. Listen, this is important because some of our translations lead us to think this guy was a teacher. He was not the teacher. He was the disciplinarian. His job was to make sure that this kid did what they were supposed to do. Get him up because he won't get up. Take him to school because he won't go to school if you don't take him. Do his work because his nature is to not do it. That was the purpose of the babysitter in its life. That it was a child yet immature. and needed to be protected. It was a cage. It was a custodian. First. Corinthians 4.15 describes this to the people of Corinth. It said, you have many guides, but you don't have many fathers. There's a difference. God gave the law to make grace not only more needed, but more desirable. Because yes, this guy was oftentimes harsh. He was strict, but he had a purpose. He was temporary, but necessary. This sin, he didn't intend to hurt the child. He intended to point the child towards something. Galatians 1.4 tells us who he was pointing us to. It says, Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father. Praise the Lord for the law because it revealed to me that the greatest evil in this world is within me. Therefore, I am the problem and the law reveals it. It shuts us up in prison until Christ, the seed, sets us free. And so we remember who we are through the lens of the promise, but we now live in who we are now. Who we were before, who we are now. Verse 25 says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. You see that? Those in faith are no longer have the babysitter. Why? Look at verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. You know what that means? You've got to get the context here. Now we're going to talk about adoption. It's coming. I want you to understand what this means. You see, in the biblical understanding, there are only children who need a babysitter and grown-ups who walk by faith. There is no adolescence in the Bible doesn't exist. It's a myth. Either you're a baby who needs a babysitter, or you have grown up in Christ and you're following Him by faith. This is what he's saying. You no longer need the babysitter. Why? Because you're mature in Christ. Because He saved you. This is dripping with the only way this happens is faith. Faith in 25. 
faith in 26. So we are sons of God. And look what else in verse 27. We are united to Christ. Verse 27. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Now he's not talking about the act of baptism unites us. He's talking about what he's already talked about. That the Holy Spirit is being indwelt within us. We have put on by Christ, put on Christ by faith. And what that produces in our lives is an inward faith in Christ, indwelled by the Spirit, produces in our life an outward living faith. That's what baptism is. It's simply a reflection of obedience of what Christ has already did within us. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 bridges this point and our next point. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It's not in your notes. It says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink one spirit. Do you see that? That's what made us one in Christ. We had faith. We repented of the object of our faith being ourselves and the God of this world. And now we have turned the object of our faith is Christ alone. He, he proves that to us by indwelling it with his very spirit, God in us. And that begins to produce something. We are baptized into him. We are one in Christ. And not only that, but that, tells, that shows us something else. It points us to verse 28. Look at it. We are also, we are, yes, we are united to Christ. But listen, we are also united to each other. Do you see it? There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is why we hit growth groups so often. You were not created to, to live an independent Christian life. You were, you were created to be redeemed and be brought into a family of God. And you are one with that family. We belong to God. We are His grown up children. And we belong to each other as brothers and sisters. And listen, this scripture is so clear. There are things now that are no longer a determining factor in your sonship. And he lists them right here. They are not determining factors. And since they're not determining factors in your life, they are not determining factors in anyone else's life. That's the direct context of this passage. Don't you dare say a determining factor for a for a Gentile is that they must be circumcised. If they have faith in Christ, they are part of our family. There is no distinction, look at it, of race. There's no distinction of ethnicity or culture. Jews and Greeks, there is only those who respond to the gospel by faith. And therefore, they are our family. There is no distinction of rank. This is culturally flipping upside down a culture. Because here's what he's saying. The master and the slave, they sit beside of each other. They are one. They're brothers and sisters. And that's ultimate. You see how Christianity doesn't have to go in and start changing rules. We just simply begin to live like Christians in the world we live in. There's no distinction of race. Oh, that the church would have no snobbery allowed for the redeemed. Why am I a child of a royal line? 
when I am only a southern boy raised in the south, a Gentile, and now I belong to the king. And if that's true of me, it's true of everyone else that responds by faith. There's no distinction of race. There's no distinction of the sexes. Do you understand the context here? <laughs> this is world flipping upside down stuff for the church in Galatians. Do you know that women were treated more like animals, not heirs? Not joint heirs. He's saying there's no more man or woman. We are all one in Christ. In other words, in the life of the church, we effectively end exploitation, abuse, and neglect within the body of Christ. And listen, we will, we will not tolerate it. We are redeemed. There is no distinction. These things are not determining factors. But let me be clear about something. Because there is this line, and it sounds real good, and I know where it came from. In Christ, we are all colorblind. No, we're not. We're not colorblind in Christ. We see the colors. We see all of them. We see the culture. We see it all in all its beauty. God did not create us to, to be a moderate view of gray. He, said he created us. And don't you go to the Biltmore house in the spring because of the colors. You want to go there if everything's red? Or do we not go there because of the diversity of colors planted in one garden and doesn't that look beautiful? Just what he's saying. This is the context. But in, the, in Christ, we're saying that the unity of Christ and faith in the gospel supersedes anything else. And it binds us together. Where we can grow together in Him to form a beautiful, diverse garden called the church. Timothy Keller says it this way. We are not all identical or interchangeable, but we are all one. The gospel has radical social implications. It means that I am a Christian before I am anyone or anything else. We are one. We are sons we are united to both Christ and each other. And look at verse 29. We are heirs. If you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. So, what is he saying? In Christ, you get what Abraham got. God. What you get? You get God. You're in the family. Ephesians 3, 6. It's not in your notes either. Got a little happy and added a couple scriptures last night. The mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We are all, no matter where we're from, no matter what's happened in our life, we are one when we have faith in Christ we take our place in the Hebrews 11 line of faith of those who see the promises of God, believe them, and then walk the rest of their life in them. So what today? You know who you are. Here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid there's many of us that are trying to earn something that can only be received. It can't be earned. 
That's why Paul is laboring through half of this letter. Because they're struggling with it too. You still live like you're trying to earn something. It can't be earned. It must be received. And if it is received, it is true. Not because of you, but because of Him. Two ways this morning that you could still be in bondage and not even know it. You could have a repentless faith. You know what that is? That's someone who thinks they can get to the promise of justification without first going through Moses. What do I mean by that? It means that you think you can get to Christ without the prior pain of condemnation of the law. What is the condemnation of the law meant to produce in your life? Repentance. Without repentance, you are not saved. Not. You could have a repentless faith, but there is no such thing in Scripture. Those who repent at one point in time go on the rest of their life to repent. Luke, 19, Luke 18 verse 9 is our growth group lesson. I'm not going to steal it away from the teachers. I just want to focus to show you this. He said there was two men who went up to pray. And one of them was one of them old, nasty, castaway trade or tax collectors. Listen to what he, the Lord said about him. But the tax collector standing, verse 13, the tax collector standing afar off would not even lift his head to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. This must have happened in your life. It is repentance from your sin and turning to Christ that will set you free and nothing else. This is the gospel. There's also a legalistic faith this morning that says this. I just need to get this right, right here, and then I'll follow Christ. I'm working on it. I'm having trouble with it. But I made more progress than I did as soon as I get this right. The legalistic faith. You see what happens to those people? Is they get to Moses and they set up camp. And they live under the bondage, under the yoke of the law, trying to earn something through the law that can only be received by His grace. And if this is who Christ feels like to you, if this is what the Christian faith feels like, is a grievous backpack that's been overpacked and overloaded and been placed on you, you have not come to Christ. Because when Christ saved you, he sets you free. And his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Only one way to be free. Only one. Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To not only forgive you. Not only to pay your debt. Not only to give you righteous. But to adopt you into his family. That's who you are. John 1.12 tells us very clearly. But to him. But to all who did receive him. Who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. Oh, and don't stop. Verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see? Get your theology right, and it will set you free. 
Because this is saying, you're not a Christian because your grandma was a Christian. You're not a Christian because your daddy wanted you to be a Christian. You're not a Christian because you chose to be a Christian. You're a Christian because it was God's will for you to be one. And if it is His will, He adopts you. And if He adopts you, He will never lose you. That's freedom, brothers and sisters. And that's the gospel. You were born again. It's a picture in my mind, probably because I've felt like it before. Of a piece of driftwood floating in the ocean. You ever just wanted to get close to it, try to figure out where it came from? Did it come from a tree that was once living and active, but now has been broken and beaten and battered and discarded? Was it a mighty ship once going somewhere but now it's been broken off and just floats around with no purpose and no meaning? Brothers and sisters, it is only the gospel of Jesus Christ that can deal with that problem. That can say, by the authority of the God who created everything, He created you in His image. And He gave you the law to prove to you that you can't do it on your own. And the law says, yes, you can't, but you don't have to because there was a seed and He came and He lived a perfect life. And He died on the cross and took your debt. And if you have faith in Him, He puts you alongside Abraham and all those who believe by after him and makes you a part of his own folding plan in this world. We are not a piece of driftwood. We are children of God. And brothers and sisters, we must live like it because that's who we are. Hold on to the promises today. So Lord, we thank you for